Welcome to the Hobcast, a weekly podcast from Hobeck Books, an independent publisher of thrillers, crime and suspense novels. Each week, we'll take you behind the scenes of what we do, the challenges and the triumphs, the bumps and troughs of building a new creative business in this pandemic world. We'll hear from the people who make all this possible, the authors, cover designers and editors, and we'll have expert insights from our guest star interviews. Nothing is off the agenda on the Hopcast from Hobeck Books, as we combined trad values and an indie spirit. Hello. Hello, and welcome again to the Hopcast Book Show, show number 47. And uh, oh, I'm going to stop saying, oh, it's remarkable, whatever. But anyway, <laughs> I suppose I'm slightly mildly panicked that we're coming up to show 50. We'll do something special for Which it. Which is going to coincide with my 50th. Here we go again. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, may I make an announcement? Rebecca Collins turns 50 on Christmas Day. All donations. <laughs> Likes books, chocolate, orange chocolate, cheese, gonna, red gonna, wine. We're going to have to set up a Just Giving page at this rate. <laughs> I don't think we'll get much response, I have to say. No, I dare say. But anyway, look, authors, if you're listening to this, <laughs> I'm coming your way. Uh, I expect a contribution of some sort. Uh, don't worry, no. it's not financial. Not financial. <laughs> More to come. Anyway, watch out for your emails. Uh, it is wonderful to speak to you again. We are really looking forward to speaking to our guest, Jenny Ensor, another of our Hobeck authors and the author of Silenced, which comes out on Tuesday, December the 7th, i.e. the day after this podcast is published. Yes, tomorrow is going to be a mad day. It really is uh, a mental day because we've got a party. We have. It's our first proper party, isn't it, really? It's our first launch party. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's done online. Um, there's a bonkers numbers of people coming to it. And we've been uh, creating some things to uh, spice up the event. What are we going to uh, drink? Mulled wine. Are we? <laughs> no, I can make some mulled wine. I'm not really into. Oh, you don't? Wine. Okay, okay, forget that then. I think it's just like wine ruined. Well, if you do if you do it properly with the ingredients in a saucepan, it's uh, not. Okay. If you buy the bottles in, can we just have some gene teas or something? <sighs> okay, okay. <laughs> All right, maybe this isn't the forum in which to argue over what we're going to drink. Anyway, I do apologise. We digress. Let's get into the Hopcast Book Show. We'll Let's say to... who we are. Exactly. But I was going to say we'll speak to Jenny later in the show. We've got the news coming, of course. But first, let's do the introductions, as you so rightly remind me. My name is Adrian Hobart. And my name is Rebecca Collins. Together, we run Hobart Books. We are UK independent small publishers of, I've put small in this week, of the following titles. Well, Titles? No, we're not doing that. <laughs> genres then. Thrillers. Suspense. Crime. And mystery. We didn't really do voices this week, did we? I didn't. No, I mean, that was me being a bit, I don't know, because you don't like mulled wine. That was me oh, you're getting really, my aggression out. You're a hump. I am because I, if you do properly, it is delicious. And you fill the house with this wonderful smell of Christmas. But I'm not going to do it. It's fine. Okay. You can just go and get some glue vine from... Little or something. What's glue vine? It's mulled wine, but German style. Oh, well, I like to make it with with um, oh. cardamom ponds and things. Anyway. Oh, well. Uh, let's get into the news then, uh, before we fall out completely. <laughs> what are we going to start with, do you think? Um. Well, just, I mean, it's something we talk about every week, about the, the 
struggles of small independent presses. Um, and uh, it came up in the news, Burning Eye Books. Um, now, they are a very, very small press and very niche as well. They publish poetry. Uh, but they've got some quite well-known poets um, on their books, including Holly McNish, who um, I've got one of her books upstairs, actually. Um, and they have just launched a crowdfunding uh, page uh, to try and raise some money because the pandemic has just wiped them of their finances. Um, they weren't able to secure any extra funding during the pandemic for various reasons. They've been uh, self-funding. The, the, two, the couple who run the company... Um, have uh, had to uh, work as well as run the company because they needed money in order to survive themselves. You know, they have to pay their mortgage and feed themselves and all those sort of things. Mm-hmm. Um, that sounds familiar. <laughs> but then I also read, and I haven't actually got details here, but uh, Canelo, you heard of Canelo? Yeah, Canelo, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so they're actually reported the opposite. They started off as a digital publisher, digital-only publisher, a good few years ago now. Uh, I think it's about six years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they also do paperbacks, but they've just announced in the bookseller that they are branching out into hardbacks because they're doing so well. Oh, right. OK, well, look, I mean, you know, it's an option to do hardbacks because Amazon now will do them. So you can. I mean, we haven't done that yet, but we're looking at it well, uh, the, loosely. The, Probably it's, it's something for 2022 to experiment with, I think. So the tradi- in the traditional publishing, if you're doing it, the, the sort of very traditional way is to publish the hardback and about nine months later you publish the paperback yes i don't quite know where the ebook fits into that because well there are other people uh viper for instance who have been publishing the ebook first then yeah if the book is successful enough they'll go with the paperback and i can see the economics to that. where does the hardback fit in there then well there's no hardback really i mean there's popular fiction isn't it uh, but interesting, Ollie Jarvis has previously been published by Canelo, I believe. So yes, that's right. Yeah. Um, so um, you know, it good for them. I mean, it's good to hear a good story, but also I am drawn more drawn to the the, the issues of a small publisher. Um, it, it is really tough. It is really tough, and I think that I'll repeat this this line. I mean, it, it is a fact that the pandemic woke traditional publishing up to the power of social media and digital advertising in a way that they weren't aware before. They were on their usual thing of, you know, getting their authors interviewed on radio stations, newspaper articles, uh, you know, billboards at railway stations, all that sort of stuff. Uh, And obviously working closely with traditional bricks and mortar stores to market their books. Mm. And they couldn't do that. Once the bookshop shut, that whole model finished and so suddenly everyone recognized what the indie market and the indie publishers and authors have been doing and steamed in there with bigger budgets and the cost per click on facebook and amazon has rocketed i mean the problem is that that makes business sense you're you are a business and you're what what you normally use to market your books is not performing as well for whatever reason pandemic i don't blame them i mean you know it's you know indie publishers and authors had well they they were pioneers they went and found how to market themselves and the other problem is is that look, you're still looking at traditional publishers for ebooks charging a lot more than indie publishers would so i'm talking about you know you, you your ebook might still cost you 7.99 uh, 8.99 same price as a paperback i find this really interesting because obviously people will be paying that 
Yeah. So they have expectations. If you are a very small press or you're a self-published author, there's no way you would charge seven ninety nine for an ebook. Well, there is that, yes, and and obviously, you know, there's a lot of people who've who've established careers by offering their first book free and releasing fast. Mm. And uh, you know, we've we've spoken to a number of them ourselves. I mean, Simon McCleave, McCleave is the obvious example. First book free. And then has released a book, best part of every six to eight weeks, <laughs> it feels like, ever since in, in the space of 18 months. Uh, you know, he's got 13 books out and it has worked for him brilliantly. And, um, you know, that is one way of doing it. But it takes a special type of author to be able to pull that off. It does. Yeah, I think they have to, they always have to have a long term plan when they start out and have determination and tenacity to see it through. Yeah, you have to have an arc. You have to be able to, you know, act like a factory, really. And I fully, you know, full credit to him. He's done brilliantly. But he has now signed a deal with a traditional publisher as well for his new series. So he's a hybrid author, effectively. Uh, the other thing is is that, um, you know, uh, that's not like, that's not, I mean, there are lots of people out there telling you how to market books. And what they don't tell you is that, yeah, you can start on, you know, five pounds a week or whatever it is, <laughs> advertising budget. That's not going to get you very far in this marketplace because the big boys have come in with bigger budgets. And actually, the truth is you need to put in four figures a month in advertising spend to to really register. And that is not for everybody. And it's tough for us, too. And, uh, you know, that's one of the realities that we're facing at the moment. So it's not what it was of two years ago. No. It, it really isn't. And that's when we first thought about the book, uh, the setting up Hope. Yeah, so it was. It was January, wasn't it, when we sort of we started to put the blocks together. In fact, I have a piece of paper somewhere, a scrappy piece of paper where we wrote our list of uh, things to do. And I think we wrote it in about November, December. The, 2019. Yeah. Yeah. We were in a cafe somewhere up north near mm -hmm. Disney and we wrote this list and I typed it up and I stuck it on the door. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah, so. Yeah, the sort of foundation document of, of the company. <laughs> uh, that, look, that's not to say that it's impossible. Of course it isn't. It, it really isn't. But I think that uh, the impact of social media channels, having social media presence, having a website, all that sort of thing, a mailing list, it's it's weakening. All of those things that were, were basically fanfared as the way to do it it's not as impactful as it used to be. And that's that's the reality. God, I'm sounding depressing again. No, well, it's just, we say this every week, we, we, we are trying to find creative ways to work with what, what is available and what we have to make ourselves show up against all the noise that's out there. Too. Yeah, there's but, a lot of noise now. There is a lot of noise. And, and we sometimes it succeeds and sometimes it doesn't. You know, so Some weeks it goes well. Yeah. Uh, a good example is at the moment, early December, late November, early December, we have struggled with our advertising and our marketing, haven't we? Because of all the other stuff that's out there for Christmas, and um, I'm not sure how many people buy books as Christmas presents. Yes, they buy the well, celebrity they buy the biographies. As, as, yes. yes, exactly. Yeah. But do it's, it's a difficult choice to think this particular work of fiction will be perfect for so-and-so because it's a very subjective, personal decision, isn't it? Mm -hmm. I mean, yes, I might do for you, but other members of my family, it's a risk. A celebrity biography, it's easier, you know? Oh, yeah, they Yeah, and it's in hardback, and it, you know, it wraps well. And So it's a personal <laughs> purchase. 
more more or less, yeah. isn't it? It's not a gift to purchase. So this time of year. No, it, it, but the, yeah, I mean, it was interesting. Uh, there was a um, we were in, been in contact, obviously, with uh, Matt Holmes, who's uh, been working with us with uh, on two or three of our authors at the moment, and we will expand uh, in the near future our sort of contact with him and and, and the range of titles that we work with him on. But uh, he sent a, uh, an email saying, "Look, you know, there is this thing, this phenomenon around Cyber Monday, around Black Friday, and Thanksgiving in the United States, where." Um, between you know that launch you know then the run up to it and then through christmas where the cost per click just goes through the roof and it's completely uneconomic uh for most people and um i think that's the case at the moment so you know uh what authors tend to find and i've heard this from from authors i've spoken to is that then it becomes more fertile territory particularly uh, after the sales are finished in january yeah and then February is a really good time because suddenly the cost per click just falls through the floor back to somewhere where it's economic to use them. So uh, that's uh, it, it's a conundrum. It you is. Know, without the advertising, it's a struggle to get people to buy the books. But if the cost of the advertising is more than the book itself, uh, not quite. But, you know, nonetheless, if you, that's guaranteed. If you get a click and it leads to a sale, then you're fine. But I it think, doesn't. Uh, we just have to accept that these things fluctuate. So our sales mm. figures fluctuate. Like I say, there are months where they're going to be higher for various reasons. People are looking for books to read. They're looking to escape the depression of January. Mm. So they want something to read to take them away. December, they don't need it. They haven't got time to read. They're buying for other people. So our sales figures, as every other publisher, are going to fluctuate. So we, it makes business sense to watch the trends and go with the trends and work with the trends and make the most of the money that we have to spend. Indeed. indeed. <laughs> right, well... That, <laughs> we got quite deep there. Yeah, we, we did, we did. Yeah, well, that's that's the nature of this podcast. We will do warts and all. We will discuss what, what affects us and, you know, we're not going to gloss over it. So but... am I going to talk about the fact I uh, carved out a, a, a part of my undernose last night? Yeah, um, we had a... Yeah, it was a, it was a frisson of about half an hour of vigorous activity when you punched yourself. I hasten to say it wasn't me. <laughs> and uh, you started profusely bleeding from just under your nose. I know. And then we had the drama on top of that, which you really struggled to get under control. It's looking fine now. I don't see any evidence of the damage. But the <laughs> other the other thing is that, um, that the cat then brought in a mouse well, on top there, of that. Well, there were actually two things. So the second thing was an enormous spider in number two son's bedroom, and he hates spiders. Give him credit. He didn't want to disturb me, so he got his his older brother to rescue him, and then the cat brought in a mouse. So the familiar meow that she does, which yeah. is like a sort of a an announcement of pride. Yeah, yeah, I am, I am. Cat. Look at me. Yeah, and then look at the present I've bought you at the foot of your bed. Aren't I lovely? Yeah, horrific, <laughs> especially at that time of night. Oh, it wasn't good. Listen, we've got one more news story we wanted to touch on, um, which is. The bookseller has really, uh, has announced the Bookshop Heroes for this year, and we're delighted to say that someone who's connected to the Hobeck uh, family has also been named. So there are 23 people who are named as Bookshop Heroes this year, and there are some fantastic indie books. I mean, if you get a chance, if you subscribe to the bookseller, have a look, because there are some really wonderful, inspiring stories from particularly indie bookshops, but within the Waterstones community. Yeah, there's some... Who... Three people from Waterstones have won awards this year from, from this, and that includes uh, the wonderful 
uh, Stephen Baird, who's also known as the big, the big bearded bookseller. Yeah, it's fantastic. And he does have a big beard. He does. <laughs> and he works in the Darlington branch of Waterstones and he's the specialist in children's bookselling. Uh, but he's also the social media champion of indie bookshops and publishers. So he oh, has he's wonderful on, on Twitter. And he's been part of our blog tour uh, for at least one of our books. I yeah, think. yeah. But he does do so much for the indie community. And, you know, it's great to have an advocate somewhere within the Waterstones family. I mean, I wish there were more. But, um, you know, full credit to to Stephen Baird for uh, for his award. Well, he deserves it totally. So do the other winners, I'm sure. Uh, but uh, Stephen's someone known to us. Yeah. So, well done, everyone. Let's get on to our interview. Well, I do have one teeny, Let's teeny, not get on to our interview. teeny, teeny, tiny thing. So, um, a couple of weeks ago, I talked about the, um, uh, the uh, what was it, sort of the oddest books of the year award. Oh, yes. And so we now know the winner of the oddest book of the year. Well, so it's oddest the, title the of the year. The diagram prize for the oddest title, book title. And the winner is... Da, 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 my personal favourite, I predicted this was going to be the winner, is Superman Circumcised by Rob Schwartz. Or even Circumcised. What did I say? Circumcised. <laughs> Sorry. I thought I said Circumcised. It came out with a T in the middle somehow. Yeah. <laughs> is Superman Circumcised? Well, it's let's actually get... a serious study about the Jewish origins of the Superman story and the Superman himself. Oh, right. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> good, 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 good. And I don't know the answer. Anyway. I don't know what we'd do. If that came across as a submission to us, what would we do? We would publish it. We probably if, would. if it had a crime element, yes. Yeah. Ooh, that doesn't bear thinking about, does it? No, let's not go there. <laughs> okay, let's get into our interview with Jenny Ensor. Now, Jenny is an experienced, uh, she's published four books, if you include Silenced. Uh, she's based in London. And she came to us with Silenced. And it's a gripping and gritty crime novel uh, featuring three main protagonists we have uh, a detective who has his own demons investigating the murder of a young teenage girl who is stabbed at a bus stop and it unravels that it's gang related now that gang is sucking in new members and those include luke who's 17 recently bereaved his mother has died he's just He's having a struggle with his stepfather um, and, and things are unravelling for him and he gets drawn into the gang. And there's Jessamine, who has become a bit of a wild child because she has an alcoholic mother. Her father's disappeared. She's rootless, really, and she's looking for somewhere to find a family, effectively. And again, the gang exploits her. And in that uh, world of North London, it's a fictional council estate, which is the sort of centre of the story, I suppose. It is an exploration of the fact that that area is riven with gang culture and knife crime. And uh, it touches on many, many difficult subjects. It is a, it's a challenging book. It's a brilliant book. Mm. And uh, as we'll discuss with Jenny, of course, it then throws up issues about whether someone of her background is entitled to write about other races and other classes, if you like. But she's done a brilliant job. There's a lot of research has gone into it. A lot it. of research, yeah. A lot of field work, I'd call it. Yeah, absolutely. So we are delighted, Hobart Books, to be publishing Silence. We think it's a very important book, and I think it's a very moving book. It's one that, when you read it, it stays with you. Absolutely. It really is. It's very powerful. Let's speak to Jenny Ensor. 
Well, thank you for joining us, Jenny Ensor, here on the Hobcast Book Show. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, so I'm glad to be here. It's always a, a great... Well, it's our pleasure. I mean, it's, it's one of the great <laughs> pleasures, I think, of, of, of running a podcast like this, is that we get to speak to our authors in a, in a fairly informal fashion and get to know more about them and, and more importantly so do our listeners so uh jenny let's let's start with let's go plunge into into it straight away with silenced um which we're very much looking forward to publishing the day after this podcast goes live um it blew us away when we read it i, I was the first fortunate person to read it from from the two of us um but it, it's fair to say it doesn't shirk from issues does it uh, yes, well, there are a lot of, yeah, there are a lot of issues in it, um, particularly, I guess, from the all sorts of things to do with teenagers joining gangs, being exploited by gangs, um, teenagers being excluded from school and being more at risk of being exploited by gangs, um, teenagers carrying knives, then there's the adult issues, corruption in the police, possible corruption in the police, and I guess lots of issues to do with racism and discrimination in the Met, um, which the main character has. And there's probably loads more. Oh, yes, I forgot to say, yeah, the the, um, issues to do with the teacher in the school who who acts in a rather foolish way, perhaps. Well, yeah, I mean, I suppose that let's set the context then. Silenced is set in... Well, where you live around the North London area and um, it's one of those things where if people don't know North London the, the boroughs abut each other and they can be very different within each borough but also very different you can go a mile down the road and suddenly you're in a very different uh, environment so let's say for instance you started in Muswell Hill where a lot of the properties are extremely grand and extremely expensive and it's nice cafes and then you know you go two or three miles down the road um, and you're into uh, an area of quite considerable poverty sometimes uh, and uh, deprivation and indeed, you know, gang-related violence. So yeah, it, 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 is, that, is, is that a fair description of, of the sort of environment and the world that you've been, you, you're writing about? Yeah, very, very much. I live in, I'm fortunate to live in quite a well-heeled area, which is... I there but I've noticed over I noticed over the years that there are more and more incidents of violent stabbings and um, gang related crime but it is an area where you can walk just towards the local say my local tube station I, I, I won't say what they are but going yeah towards the tube station a friend of mine went to a was outside coming out of a tube station and she saw a young man fighting for his life. He'd just been stabbed. And hearing about this, I didn't see it myself, but hearing about it, that was one of the things that got me thinking about what it must be like to be in a gang if you're a teenager. And and it really brought home how, I guess, how close all these things are. Um, I didn't know very much. I live not a few miles away from where the book is set, mostly in Tottenham and Wood Green. And that is, although it's, yeah, it's only a short distance away, it does feel very different. And I would never, for a long time, I would never go there if I had no, no reason to, because it's not like, say, you go to Hampstead Heath for, for a nice walk, enjoy the scenery. Though 
that wouldn't apply to somewhere like Tottenham and it has the reputation I've known of its reputation for a long time yeah I haven't lived I lived uh, before in other parts of London so I've lived about oh, 15 20 years here but given the reputation and also the, a depressed to be honest a very depressing feel of walking in some of these very deprived areas which I did while I was researching the novel um so in a sense you had to uh, to, to 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 be authentic and, and get that feel and and you had to go into areas where previously you'd have avoided yeah exactly yes i'd made a when i was researching a novel i walked around parts of the eastern side of tottenham the borough of Haringey, which is the most deprived and where you have the most i think you have the most concentration of council estates so also i went the first thing i went to went to see was uh the um broadwater farm estate which is the notorious one where there were riots and uh, the the death of the um, where a policeman was killed and keith blakelock exactly keith blakelock and and that was i took a friend with me for moral support because i was quite worried and my husband was, was worried about me going in there on my own and even though like by Obviously, by daylight, there are all sorts of people walking around and you're not likely to be stabbed or anything. But I, I, I thought, oh, well, I just, I, it was just rather strange because I went the day I went in, there had been a stabbing of a teenage boy. I think it was no, the day before. And I didn't realise that. And I started talking to a few, few kids, we, which... No, just passing by really to try and get a feel of a place and I it just uh, my very initial research and the boy I would talk to just said oh well they, uh, you, you might be undies or something like undercover police <laughs> right. you, should be, you should be careful did, um, did you find people were willing to talk to you I I did yes I, I also I went with this very brazen friend who will literally talk to anyone <laughs> <laughs> I'm not normally that I'm not particularly outgoing, but I do, I was a journalist in the past, so I feel I can, if I have to, I, I'm quite happy, I'm happy, but I'm willing to talk to anyone. And we saw all sorts of, all sorts of young, I'd say they're mostly young men, different ethnicities, but some were very worrying and just their behaviour was worrying. There was, I don't know if they were sort of, I don't know, some, some I, I got the distinct impression that there were, was some drug selling going on. I, I was approached by a couple of kids on bikes asking if I wanted anything. And uh, wow. I, went, I went back several times. But there are, I recognise there are quite a few issues, moral, I guess, ethical type issues in, like, a, a, say, a writer going out and doing research. And how do you identify someone who might be in a gang, which is what I, I, I really wanted to find an actual gang member or someone who was affected by gang crime, mm. for example, who had a brother who was in a gang, whatever. But to actually find one who would talk to me, that took a long time. And I went through my contacts and then I started, I went to various estates and I quite no, and started to talk to people. I did meet a, a drug dealer who told me lots of stuff, <laughs> which was quite helpful. And yeah, I, I just went through all my contacts and I started going to gang charities. But really, the actual doing the, walking around these estates, yeah, uh, sort of, 
opened my eyes to a lot of, I guess, the, I guess it was an, a sort of inspiring, you know, not in a positive way, in a creative, it was creative, yeah. yeah, yeah, and and so I, because I need to, have, to to write particular scenes, I had felt I needed to see it and to imagine. And I wanted to find, say, uh, where my character Luke, where he could live. And I want at first I thought it might be in Broadwater Farm. And then I thought, no, no, I, I can't have a. Sorry, I'm going off this, the subject here, but I thought I can't have a a real. I can't make the estate where the gang is based, where my fictional gang is based. I can't make it a real estate because it would pose too many problems and issues. Yeah. And people would probably be saying, oh, yes, well, Water Water Farm isn't like this and you've got it all wrong. And so and I also wanted the freedom to make it how I wanted it to an extent. So I, I just invented a large fictional estate in roughly the area, a bit more east of Tottenham, actually. So where there are lots of other estates, so I could just be a bit freer with what happens. Um, and I was, yeah, very much inspired by uh, walking around various estates in Tottenham and seeing like people that obviously looked like they were, well, crackheads or in a quite a state from drugs. And I mean, I'm, I guess I'm lucky. I have had a very privileged life with a few interludes where I was homeless, but um, it was quite an eye opener to actually go walk and uh, getting access. Well, I managed to get inside some of these tower blocks and just walk around and get a talk to people and get a feel yeah. for what, admittedly, I had. I have no first-hand knowledge of. It's very much imagination and piecing together information that I find, you know, talking to people and reading and everything else. So, do you find that? Um you get more out of I suppose you'd say sort of field research than say if you just read lots of books or communicated online with people for me it's both because I, I in a way I, I wanted to understand gangs more so I as I was going along I read a lot of academic type books um, on um, I guess gang theory on a gang organization and and especially all about gangs in Britain because I, I, I just then I got quite fascinated by the whole gang, the whole concept of gangs and what they are and the secrecy of them. I guess it is the secrecy, and um, to find what's going on. But I realised that for for my book, I needed to have details, very vivid details, and I wanted, I guess, talk actually talking to people. You can become little things they say will trigger off an idea because um, mm -hmm. I. I met, um, well, I found out, I met this a man who runs this gang, a, a charity to help young people to leave gangs, or uh, he acts as a mentor in a sense, and he has boys about 16 or maybe a bit younger or a bit older. Um, and he was really generous to me and set up lots of meetings, and he gave he personally gave me information, plus he asked, we had various meetings where he would be in a room with some of his younger, they were, they were boys actually, but one of the boys who was quite happy to talk to me um, about his experiences in, in the recent past. Um, but I, I felt, I was also inspired by just reading about true crime in just very close to where I live. And there was, 
various horrendous, horrendous actually um somebody's true crime some were gangly i'd say like were gang leaders and some were more like leaders of organized crime groups there was one who was known as the godfather of green lanes who was put in prison sometime some time ago um but read i reckon now looking back i recognize that some of these figures inspired my gang leader and also some of the situations some of the sort of exploitative type situations were things i'd ever read about or someone had told me about yeah Let's um, let's set the context then. You've got uh, the narrative is told from the perspective of three characters. You've mentioned Luke, who is uh, sixteen, going on seventeen, with um, familial problems. His mother's just died. Uh, he's bright, but uh, the his mother's partner has become uh, well. There's a breakdown in relationships there. Uh, let's put it that way. And uh, you know he is obviously grieving still. And he's vulnerable. And then you've got Jessamine, whose mother is an alcoholic. She's, you know, got dependency issues. Uh, she's been rusticated out of her all-girls school. Uh, she lives in a, in a, you know, fine-looking property in terms of, you know, a number of floors and all that. But her, her father's disappeared. Her mother's an alcoholic. There's no food in the house. And she's fallen under the influence of one of the, the gang leaders. And then you've got the perspective of the police uh, investigator in Callum, uh, who has a dark history of his own, which which haunts him somewhat. And also he has the responsibility of, of trying to crack this case at a time where everyone in the community that you've created, basically even the people who have been most affected by the, the shocking uh, instig instigating crime, that the murder of a, of a schoolgirl in broad daylight, um, no one's prepared to talk about it, hence silenced. And the uh, the codes of a murder that that surround uh, everybody in the book. I think it's it's fascinating how everybody is in a warped culture, including Callum, where you know you can your conscience tells you to do one thing, but everything else is telling you to do something else. And um, good people are basically being warped by the by the environment and the culture that they're within. Um, I think it's it's absolutely fascinating that there's so much jeopardy for all three characters. Um, it, it clearly is very, very powerful. So when you were creating those characters, was that your aim to, 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 to put them in situations where they were always fighting their own, you know, uh, morality, I suppose? Yeah, I, I don't think it's a conscious aim in that sense. Uh, but I wanted to definitely place them in extremes, extreme circumstances and, and see what would happen because I was, I was, yeah, in, I've always, I guess I've always been interested in the, the idea of betrayal, love and betrayal and be how far people might go. Um, I guess in all, well, if they love someone, how far they might go to help them or to save them. And also, when people are very afraid, the sort of extreme situations, how far would they go to act in a, in a, to be like a good person, despite their fear? And, and the idea that, I guess, for me, it's how, all about, yeah, having the courage to speak out and how some people can actually be quite heroic or very definitely heroic 
and they're very ordinary people but they are because they for some whatever reason they're able to do what most people can't and to put themselves last in a, in a sense yeah when when and everything they, else is telling them to be selfish in a sense i think i think people in real life do do that when they're in that situation where they're pushed to the limit and they don't think they would be able to do something but they actually do so i because i felt that the characters were very real for that the fact that you know you could imagine that scenario where it's, it's so extreme that you do act the way at the end ultimately you act the way that you know is sort of what you feel is the right way to act however hard it is yes i think yeah that's one of the things that divides people and and possibly you you never ever find out hopefully in in a normal sort of life you're not put in that situation where you're it's actually your life on the line or if you follow through and do what you think is the right thing and speak out about something that's wrong um yeah. i did see i, I realized i was my character, yeah, Jessamine, the teenage girl, she's, yeah, she, I can't, I don't want to give away anything too much, but uh, yeah, she is definitely put in a situation where she's, she needs to decide whether to act for herself or to step up and to And that, that's especially yeah, hard for a teenager, isn't it? I mean, that, that's one thing yes, about your um, book that was very appealing is that you seemed very able to get into the minds of the teenagers mm. I mean I'm a mother of I've got two teenagers and a 12 year old and I found it quite harrowing reading <laughs> about the, the situations these teenagers the same age as mine were going through and then you know I look at them and they're pottering around the house looking for food and the most important thing on their mind is whether they've got their maths book or not for the next day and <laughs> yeah well I think I mean, it's a long time since I was a teen. I've, I've, I'm a stepmom, as the article pointed out. Um, so I, I have had experiences of teenagers in the house for quite a few years. And, and I think I can safely say that one of them is, is female and at one age, no, she used to come home and look at, and um, she would use a lot of uh, modern teenage slang there was no incidents at all anything like what happened but I guess it was she came up with a few stories from she's now a teacher in a primary teacher and she came up in East, East London and so uh, every week it was like yeah something else had happened in a school and there were either some threat of violence or some violence within the school and, and then there was a story about her um someone in her class boy in her class whose father yeah his father was involved at a high level in the gang and also a, a drug dealer everyone knew about it social services knew the school authorities knew and the police apparently knew but they obviously didn't have enough evidence to convict him i, I don't know she didn't know anything about that but and in my i guess in my i came i my background i came, came from a very dysfunctional family and so i, I guess put i can easily Put myself back into a sort of dysfunctional family environment because I relate very strongly to that even though I have no direct experience of any you know, anything that I write about in terms of like, gangs and drugs yeah I think drugs. I think that 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 comes through um brilliantly actually it, it is that 
the warping impact of dysfunctional family situations, or indeed, you know, in Jessamine's case, you could almost argue there's hardly any family um, connection. She is finding family by uh, going out with someone senior in the gang. She finds uh, a certain status from 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 doing so, even though gradually she it dawns on her that this is really not not her world and not for her. But um, with Luke, uh, I think what you've captured with him so much is that need to keep face. You're, you're ending up. There's always this challenge to do what your contemporaries think you should do. Otherwise, you know, you're, well, for want of a better word, you're going to be a pussy or someone like that. You know, anything to, to avoid being criticised by your by your contemporaries, by the people around you. Yeah, that's interesting you say that. But, yeah, I, I think that is probably one of his motivations. But also, for me, it was to find, like Jessamine, a sense of belonging, maybe, and a family, and to feel you now his, his mother has died and he's struggling to 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 cope with that and then his father has he's always been no his father has always his stepfather has always had issues the two of them and he and it just at, at, at time because of the family situation his everything in school travels towards a disaster really like a slow train wreck absolutely you can see it all coming can't <laughs> yeah. you and and there are. And I, yeah, I, I really wanted, I guess, to get across a little bit about the, the whole idea. For, for me, I can understand, yeah, for the whole idea about having a family, because they, they say, they call it a fans. Um, it's just to convey that, that when you don't have the family around you, and how I can, I can understand how easy it would be to, to want to be in anything, anything at all that might replace it. Indeed. Yeah, because they're looking for a connection with other people, aren't they? If they haven't got that at home, they've got to find it elsewhere. And at that age, that's that's something you want very badly and you need very badly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's it's interesting what you say about the, the stepfather figure. Uh clearly, you know, suddenly plunged into a responsibility he wasn't expecting with the death of his partner, um, and Luke's mother. Uh and that sort of, I mean, I am effectively stepfather to <laughs> or at least weekdays and, and one weekend in three to uh, to Rebecca's boys. And, you know, I have two boys of my own. So, you know, it's not like I haven't got the fatherhood thing, but you are at this one removed situation where you can see things that need perhaps intervention. And what well, like uh, advent calendar gate the other day? Well, we, yeah, we had, we had some very middle class issues this week about, you know. <laughs> Uh, which suites were going in which slot for advent calendars and all this sort of stuff. But anyway, look, it, <laughs> the point is, is there are times when I feel I need to say something and I'm always in that situation where you're judging whether intervening is actually going to cause more problems than, than not um, and whether whatever you do is proportionate. Now, clearly, in the situation of Luke's stepfather, he gets violent uh, and touch wood and everything else that I never get to that position um but you know it's within any man I'm sure to when you get to the point of total frustration to to lash out yes uh, exactly you know and it's physic it's physical and verbal in in in, in the case of Luke's family situation um mm. 
And there's that feeling that, you know, Luke feels that he could lash back, but he doesn't want to, his sister is the one he's really worried about. Mm-hmm. Um, he's she, protecting you know, her. Her safety and her well-being is the most important thing. So the, 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 what I, I think is so strong in this book is the complication of thoughts, the things that hold people back from doing the thing that's right or, um, you know, that the warps their behaviour, that the, the, they feel they have to behave in a certain way because of, things that might happen to other people they care about yeah and I yeah so I really wanted to yeah first of all to do with Luke's stepfather I wanted at first I I made I think I made him a little too black and white and he was much more violent and I I thought that would be more more of an impetus to for Luke to join the gang but I realized that I just wanted him to the stepfather to be more of a rounded person and 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 actually possibly not not sympathetic but uh, but understandable and relatable and that that it is partly frustration that brings him to act how he does and to become violent and and he's not like um, a person who is who is cold, cold-bloodedly violent and no he's not a monster is he and he's not as, a monster book. at all yes and I also I tried to very much I wanted to have I guess have the um parallel situation between uh, the detective Callum and his own father and Callum's son yes. and in, in a sense to yeah for that to be like um it's a different to be a parallel situation where Callum is, yeah, is in a sense dominated by the relationship he had with his his own father and the, the other traumatic event that happened when Callum was 16, so the same age as Luke. And so I was, I became quite interested in exploring the parallels between these two relationships and and, and I guess the trauma at the heart of them and it, there's a difference in that with Callum. It's a, it's a big secret in his past that he hasn't been able to tell anyone at all. And so there becomes the, arises a situation where he has to decide whether to re- re- reveal and to be open and to share some of this with his own son, which is the big dilemma he faces yeah. um, in his own family situation. I think I think there's an interesting thing that you 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 explore um, very well is the toxicity of keeping secrets, the way that it can eat a person from within um, and do them so much damage. And the longer you hold the secret, the worse it gets. We were talking about this recently, weren't we, with Linda Huber? Because that's a big feature of her book as well, Packed to Silence. And yeah, exactly. exactly that, yes. but the, the secret yes. builds and builds and builds in your mind, and, and to the extent that it's the only thing you can think about. And it's also it's not just within within one's own mind. If you have a secret, it's it builds in the sense that you have a, you have a secret, but by not sharing it, it but your loved ones and whoever it affects your say your close friends or love. In this case, it's Callum's son. Then Callum's son feels like he's been lied to and deceived. Yeah. Yeah. his life and that then has a much bigger impact than it would if it had just been shared perhaps at a younger age even though given the nature of a secret it was understandable that Callum couldn't 
felt he couldn't say anything. Yes. Um, I mean, this book is, it has some really visceral scenes in it um, as, as we go along. I mean, it starts with a shocking murder, but without giving too much away, clearly violence is the principle and the fear of violence is the principal weapon that the gang uses against, you know, to cow the community and the people within the gang uh, and everyone around it. Um, in terms of when you were researching, were, the, were those moments things that people had shared with you, that they witnessed stuff like this, or was it a work of the imagination? Yeah, well, both. Uh, I did... I, uh, initially, when I was re I read a lot of my local newspapers online and um, true crime books. A lot of the crimes have happened locally, and I and I there was one out of many cri crimes. There was one I haven't just remembered the other day. It was to, to do with it was a, a case in Reading. It went to court, and the two I think I don't know how many men were convicted, but there were these two girls, teenagers, who were effectively they were believed to have betrayed one of the, <clears throat> the gang leader or one of the elders anyway and they were tortured I don't know if they were raped or what but it, it, it was extremely serious what well, I think one was killed and it was all to do with this sense of betrayal yeah um, so that was one thing and then I the the the, uh, the gang member the ex-gang member I, that I mentioned that I'd met he he told me quite a few things about yeah he was not living not too far from me and he told me yeah there were mainly it seemed to be quite um yeah, quite horrendous I thought it was quite horrendous <laughs> for quite small transgressions within within yeah. this gang um and no someone being dragged from a car and uh, and left semi-naked on a in a supermarket car park sort of thing in the rain and all, yeah all sorts of or well, several things which seem to be quite yeah but I, I know from reading although they seem like if you're not in a gang they don't seem like very much but they in some from my reading anyway and from what I've managed to learn there are quite a few unwritten laws unwritten rules that if people do transgress they're Pretty serious, and one of them is probably like talking to people outside of a gang about something that's quite important inside it. Yeah, so yeah. I was quite yeah. I feel it was. Well, there there is a there yeah, is a paranoia that is pervades all conversations within that gang that you that that you, you you're dealing with from the from the top to the bottom. Everyone's looking over their shoulder. Everyone suspects the <laughs> yes. other of going to the feds, uh, as they yes. might say. Um, and you know, it, it reminds me, I've just been watching Narcos series three from Mexico, so the <laughs> sixth of the Narcos well, series, I, the last of them. Well, and it's the same of, thing there, well, a lot of yeah, a lot of that. Some of that stuff to do, I have, um, I did have a much bigger section, I cut it down because I became also, I'm very interested in undercover cops and so on. And I had this, I do have undercover cops on the estate, and they and I got some of that from discussions with this, this, um. This charity worker, basically, yeah. who he's he runs a charity, um, but he t in the past he, he was in a. I don't want to say the wrong thing, thing here, but he did commit a serious crime, and he was involved in gangs, and I believe he was a gang leader himself, and he told me a lot of stories to do with 
with the police and what the police will do if when they well what they actually did when they were trying to track him down and the surveillance that they would do and I asked him lots of questions about oh what would the police do they suspected there was a gang HQ looks like that well like um you call it like a say either a store a place to store guns or weapons or just a headquarters for meetings in on a council estate and you're saying oh yes well the police will probably go in and undercover to maybe if, try to get the flat next door or maybe convince whoever was there to let them have it or buy it and yeah know, pretend yeah put in maybe you'd you know pretend that it needed some yeah, gas they'll, they'll go to many lengths to to, to break they could do to, yeah and then and he said in his case they the police, yeah, they, they eventually, over a couple of years, they bugged his, they put a um, bug on his car and or, and then they managed to, put, they managed to, it's uh, a dog barking. <laughs> yes, but he, yeah, he, he was, yeah, he came out with quite a few details about this surveillance. Uh, and yeah, so that, I guess it all, the actual, like, where, from even like where they would put the bugs in, um, say, in a council estate, and then I talked to um, a, a DC who would, was working. He was still at, he still is working in a, a gangs unit in Haringey, and he told me about the, yeah, just putting bugs on doorways and so on, and what they might do and might not do. So silence comes out uh, on Tuesday, the seventh of December. Really looking forward to that. We're having a little launch do. Um, <laughs> There are details of that on our uh, Hovec page, but we've got a lot of people joining us, so it's going to be quite a, a shindig, I think, albeit online. Let's hope Zoom is a little bit kinder to us than it has been so far on this interview. Um, Jenny, in terms of your where silence sits within your own writing career, what, what number book is this now? It's my fourth book. Mm-hmm. And, yes, it's, I've written, yeah, the, it's, I've written two other books which are somewhat I wouldn't say somewhat similar at all this is very different in many ways it's my first I guess it's my first proper crime novel in the, in that I have a detective who is solving a crime or attempting to and there's a mystery associated with that but I have my first novel was was a thriller called Blindside and that involved but also involved a love story, in a sense, a relationship. And I, I, there were many issues, controversial issues relates, for example, the Russian mafia and terror, Islamic terrorism. And I invented this sort of alternative, not like, like, like an alternative future, but it was all set in the year of the London tube bombings in 2004, in 2005. Yeah. Um, so I had a, a Russian who was traumatized by by fighting in against Chechnya, and uh, he came to London, met this woman who started to suspect that something might be a little strange about him, and that and she started to question his loyalties and wonder if perhaps he was actually sympathizing with Islamic terrorists. And, and then, yeah, and then I wrote um, The Girl in His Eyes, my second novel. And that was also, I guess, family, dysfunctional family at the heart of it. And psychological suspense, 
not I try to put in some sort of social issues as well because I quite I like to have something that is really saying something a little bit about the the society we live in not purely like um like a, a family for example um and in this case it was definitely like child abuse exploitation um quite yeah definitely some issues in there and very and looking at very dark Yes, very, very dark subject matter, but hopefully in a way that is suspenseful and entertaining for the reader and not, and I never want to, like in, and in this book now, I, I, I never want to be accused of, well, probably I will be, but accused of like doing anything gratuitously, which has no, which is like we fight well with knife crime, it's easy. People, could, because I do, my character Zom has a, the massive zombie knife which is why he's called zom yeah um and, and anyway and going back to the books my the previous book to this the previous one that i wrote completely different uh a relationship comedy but also i suppose of issues to do with motherhood and um mm-hmm. all, all sorts of other <laughs> issues but totally totally different although it, I guess I, I, I'm, yeah, I'm now feeling I, I, I'm, I want to try to get more humour into my, I, I love using humour and comedy, but I, yeah, so I'm experimenting to, to an extent of how much humour and how much darkness I can bring into the one novel. Do you think they can go together then, the humour and the Absolutely. dark? Absolutely. I think sometimes they're essential that you, uh, you don't, if you have a very dark subject, you don't want to be like, it can be too much for the reader if you have no humour whatsoever. Or it, it, I just feel that, in, and life is like that, that you often get something that is funny in spite of it being like almost shockingly awful, that you, like you feel you shouldn't laugh about something or in, you shouldn't laugh about maybe not that thing itself. But in, in um, it's also a way to cope, I think, because in my family, my brother and I, we, we weren't, the family was definitely dysfunctional and sometimes we just felt we had to laugh to get you know, to cope with certain situations yeah i think that's true i mean it's human nature isn't it i mean we've been talking previously about sort of during the second world war humor was a massive coping mechanism absolutely and indeed when we spoke to kate yeah. bendelow on the hopcast uh crime scene investigator from manchester some of the scenes that, i mean the dark gallows humor that gets her and her colleagues through the situations they they're faced with with uh, you know murder scenes and things like that uh you know it's kind of um i think it, there is a, we put this to her but it's become a little unfashionable for the public want everybody to uh to emote and to be um to be you know horrified by everything and you know up in arms about everything and yet sometimes humor is the best way to to deal with something um that is awful uh and and you know tragic and whatever you know but we seem to be in a society where that's not allowed anymore yeah exactly there there is there in our society there seems to be more and more people who are calling each other you know calling other people out about you know what's what's appropriate what isn't appropriate and i do like to think that in um writing a novel you can be freer to express things without being condemned for you know, what's you know, doing something that's not fashionable or isn't appropriate. Yeah. 
um, but yeah. I mean that that is the that is the fine line uh, that you as a writer and we as publishers have to have to 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 judge. But at the same time, you know, I think we we as three people would all defend the right to to self expression um, and to creativity and art, and that is going to sometimes ruffle feathers. And we should, but we defend that the right to do so. To, to you know, you can't. Uh, you know, there is this, I think, movement and this uh, uh, cultural shift to circumscribing anything that isn't a certain point of view and, and 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 thought. And this is exactly what George Orwell was 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 warning us about, in a sense that you know, if we all have groupthink, then um, you know, we're getting ourselves in real trouble. Yeah, and now we have. And really- I also think if if you ruffle someone's feathers, then you've had an impact on them. It might not be yeah. entirely positive, but you know, they've read your book. You've ruffled their feathers. You think if, if you have things you want to say or, and, or things which through writing they force themselves onto the, somehow they, they force themselves out of what you're writing, they need to be heard. You can't, if you're then, if you're all the same, all the time worried about how the impact in a, a negative way, you can't, you can't do that. It doesn't work. No, it doesn't. I, but it, I did. Have, yes. Sorry, go on. Go on, go on. Oh, I was going to say I did have some uh, some serious thoughts about when I was in the process of writing about who should be in my gang, what ethnicities, what backgrounds they should be, and I had some very strong ideas at first, which I some for some some of the gang members I realised that it was it was possible that I could I could change things, and for others I couldn't. Because I, I I was very much aware of try at first my the only thing I thought about was to be t- absolutely realistic and then I started to think oh maybe I should change it slightly to be more politically correct if you like um, yeah. to be more acceptable to some people and yeah and that was yeah it was just a very I'd never never had that um, before with any other book and it was partly I think the climate I wrote it in mm-hmm. where there were all sorts of issues to do with well I mean the, there are there, there are many people who would would, would you know out there I'm sure who would feel the temptation um, given you know their view on anyone I mean there's this cultural appropriation debate isn't there or misappropriation whatever way you put it um, that somebody of your background and um, ethnicity should not be writing black characters. There are people who will say that, regardless of what's in it and how sensitively done and how well-researched it is and how authentic it is, um, that it's not your story, it's not your truth, uh, to use a Megan <laughs> Duchess of Sussex kind of <laughs> phrase. It, it, the, 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 and and it, this is, uh, for me, that sort of uh, pedantry and... Uh, sort of narrowness of folk of thought is is the biggest danger out there at the moment because you know who creates anything if it's i mean who wants to read about you know a character like me and all the other characters that would be like me if i wrote a book um yeah. because that's the only thing i can actually reflect because on. you can there's no limit to how narrow you can get the tribe of people you can write about because it ends up just being like yourself yeah, so you must have just write about the autobiography. Safely write about without anyone saying, oh, you've got it wrong, and and or how dare you write about something you don't know about. 
because I, I really strongly believe we are all humans and that's the most common that's the most we have out in common above all else and what our colors our skins are and what you know food we eat and the culture we have and religion we have these are all secondary things and absolutely and, I mean I, I, I felt like that when I lived abroad I lived in Japan for two years and that the the humanity that we all had in common was much more significant than any of the cultural differences and and actually that made life interesting yeah exactly yes and if, if you're writing it then it brings up that I guess I do have three first person narrators but apart from those I have a lot of other characters yeah and what what do you do now it, it means if you can only write from your own point of view or from about people who are like you of your background and appearance then you can't write about any no large numbers of people who have different backgrounds who all have different backgrounds to each other which is ridiculous of course well (laughs) for me well well, I mean it's an ongoing battle and it's one that you know you will have considered and uh, as you say you you uh had to second guess at times and and tone down things and you know and ask yourself those questions and indeed as we as publishers have to do the same thing you know um you know what's what's appropriate what's going to be potentially reputationally damaging all that sort of stuff comes into play at some point but when it boils down to it we stick by the primacy of creation that we should be allowed to to do things because look nothing that we value now from 20 30 40 50 years ago um would be you know we're junking a whole load of stuff which is creatively and culturally very very important and and wonderful um and thought-provoking and and challenging and and change the world uh because it's become unfashionable or it's slightly you know it's now getting junked and that's just not acceptable in my view burning books yeah it is effectively effectively cancel culture is burning books by a different by a different uh, approach yeah well, that's um, uh, <laughs> I don't know if it's the right, right time to, to introduce. No one is going to burn my books. <laughs> no, but I, I want to ask I want to ask one more craft style question then. So um, I, I'm always fascinated uh, with with authors and in terms of you know I, I'm I'm dabbling um, more emphasis on the publishing and narration at the moment than the writing. But in terms of your ideal writing day, what does that what does that take shape as? You know, how, how many words? What sort of time of day would you work? That kind of thing. Ideally, I get up not too early and get writing straight after breakfast. And right away, uh, well, yeah, I can easily, when I'm really into it, the first draft, for example, I can just keep on writing all day and not notice anything, anything else but... I'd say working and I would normally try to work until until at least all morning. And then if I'm really if it's going well, work in the afternoon, possibly the evening. But I have a really overactive mind and I find sleep is difficult. So I know that I should not be writing in the evening. <laughs> you would get to forget. <laughs> yeah. but sometimes, yeah, that, that it, yeah, one can't help it. If you get you get so engrossed in it. Um, yeah. So. I think you share that with Rebecca and I that uh, we have to be very conscious of allowing our minds to switch off, or we're just going to be tossing, I'm turning, playing things I'm over terrible. in our minds all night. Um, <laughs> it's, it's a real well, challenge. Happens, 
yeah, to me about, no, I'm not I'm spending more time doing other things, not purely writing, but I am, I am trying to keep my fifth novel going by hook or by crook, <laughs> even though I'm doing other stuff. Um, but I, I do, enjoy, I love getting out and talking to people, going out and seeing other places that I don't know. And I suppose the ideal time I'd have some days where I'm just at my desk writing all day, no distractions, which is mostly okay because um, I have a office at the top of a house and um, my husband has retired, well, retired a few years ago and I used to have to walk the dog, but I don't know. I don't have many things that get in the way. Right? When I want to, I can just do it, which is what I'm lucky about. Well, that's a fabulous freedom to have. Right. We can't let you go without you facing the ultimate of interview challenges. <laughs> it is becoming internationally renowned as the most challenging thing there is. Uh, Michael Parkinson, forget it. He had never asked a question as difficult as Rebecca's <laughs> random question. So my question is, tomorrow you are Prime Minister. What's the first thing you'd change? Uh, okay. Well, I would introduce systems and I guess I would put as my priority making Yes, equality in society, more equality in society, and a healthy environment and greener environment. Um, and I would, I guess that's what, those are the two main things. I, I, I was still annoyed about what Boris did years ago when he was supposed to be getting rid of fans, I think it was fans from the centre of London. And that didn't happen for a long time. And um, yeah, I'm concerned about the environment and I live ne quite near a busy road and I wouldn't like, I just feel it's, there's all you know, the dangers from diesel pollution and mm -hmm. the air quality and combined with the problem of climate change, I don't think we're doing enough. And I would take, take huge steps to try to make our society more equal to reduce like yesterday there was something in the evening standard about the unemployment rate for black people twice as high or black young men twice as high as, as it is for everyone else yeah um yeah. and that to me yeah it is not, it's not surprising that there's so much crime and so much stabbing and violent crime yeah so much yeah I, I just I guess to me that if you increase equality and let everyone have more share of our wealth that will benefit benefit everyone yeah you get my vote well I asked this question to my boys and they they had a bit of a chat and they decided that what they would do is secondary school would start at 10 a.m and finish at 6 p.m <laughs> that's quite a long day yeah, but they do, yeah I suppose well nine till yeah I suppose it is actually but they would do their homework while at school so that when they got home they had nothing to do they wanted to have everything done at school so a longer day later on in the day so they could sleep <laughs> and then they'd go home and they could watch tv play on the xbox and do anything they like that was a um, educational 
policy that they were going to implement if they were prime ministers. <laughs> yeah. I like that. I like that. I think I'd, uh, the first easy, cheap and easy thing I'd do is uh, make ISBNs free in this country like they are in so many others. Um, that's a publishing thing. Uh, <laughs> I would make prawn cocktail crisps free for everybody. Okay. Yeah, that, that would that would benefit everyone. Um <laughs> <laughs> not the prawns maybe and i guess huge kudos well i guess <laughs> yeah more no, i mean i'm being slightly frivolous i mean there are many things, many things that um we would do but i yeah i mean it's interesting that you know you can live in certain parts of the world and you get a free isbn and um i didn't actually know that oh yeah absolutely 100 percent uh there's quite a number of countries particularly in the middle east where this is the case but it, it, it it's i mean it's not an impediment because look Buying an individual ISPN is like buying a CD or something like that. But yeah, we bought we bought producing it's, <laughs> it's a big expense. It is a big yeah, expense. yeah. If you're just buying one at a time, it's like ten pounds or whatever it is. Yeah, twenty quid, something like that. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, it's you know it seems um, you know a bit of an unfair tax on, uh, on creativity. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know much about it, but any tax on paperbacks and ebooks. Yeah, I mean that's that has uh, that's shifted certainly in the UK, but it's certainly taxed in other countries for sure. And if you're in Australia, uh, <laughs> the taxes on books are ridiculous. Um, yeah, so for a book that we pay ten pounds over here, you know they're paying thirty, forty, fifty dollars for a for a paperback. So uh, it is really tough. Very expensive. Yeah, but that's uh, that's another. That's for, for good reason not to emigrate to Australia. That's a debate for another day. I used to live um, in Australia. <laughs> no, I if I were Prime Minister of Australia, I'd certainly change a few things. Yeah, there's, there's <laughs> a bit of culture change needed there. For sure. <laughs> well, I think we, uh, we should draw it to a close. Thank you so much, Jenny. We really look forward to bringing silence to the world the day after this podcast goes live. We've got a little uh, partyette on, on Zoom or whatever it uh, format we're using. Zoom, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, very exciting number of guests. Um, how are we going to I make- know, we've had loads of sign-ups. It's, it's going to be very exciting. <laughs> I think we're going to have a lot of little screens popping up with people holding drinks and going cheers, but we're looking forward to that because you'll be doing I've it. I've told everyone that they can ask you difficult questions. Yeah. Excellent, thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> and you can have, uh, if you can have 50 Rebecca's random questions, Rebecca, ready for everybody who turns up no problem one each <laughs> <laughs> that'll be wonderful but uh, jenny ensor thank you so much for joining us yes it was good to talk jenny ensor's silenced is published by us on tuesday this december the 7th i.e the day after this podcast is first published and we are marking the occasion as we mentioned with a little gathering we are, and we're so we're also celebrating almost like sort of a secondary to silence, the dark side of Christmas. Yes, that is also published on Tuesday the seventh of December. That's our charity anthology. Some of our Hobeck authors and the two of us have written some uh, dark tales for Christmas. Dark twisted tales. Yes, and it's garnered some wonderful reviews so far. We're extremely grateful for those who've, who've uh, taken the trouble to published uh, reviews on goodreads and looking ahead we uh we're we're thrilled with it and it's our second charity anthology the first one was free last year for subscribers this one is making money for street reads which is uh, a, a side charity really to the simon community in scotland and they help uh, the homeless 
in both Edinburgh and Glasgow get access to literacy and to books. Yes, so. So it's a fantastic um, cause. And I think it's interesting for the two of us because this is the first time we've put ourselves and our literary efforts, if you could call it that, for public consumption or paid public consumption. Yeah, yeah, slightly different. Yeah, <laughs> so every time I, in the inbox I see one of our advanced readers um, and the subject line is the dark side of Christmas, I have this initial sort of <gasps> intake what of breath. What are going to think of our stories? <laughs> well, we're thrilled with it and we're very proud of it. And but, we've, we'd like to thank all the authors who, who've contributed to the anthology. There is one last celebration on the 7th of December. There is, yes. Brian Price, no, the author. There's, there's another one on top of that. Well, let, let me, yeah. Happy birthday, Brian, for the 7th of December. Oh, happy birthday, Brian. Yeah, wonderful. No, there is another one because Blood Loss, the audiobook, is also out on the 7th of December. <laughs> it just goes on and Ke- on. Kerry Swan, uh, Kerry Swan's novel, uh, Kareen Swan's novel, um, fantastic book, and uh, narrated by Judy Dakin. Another Hobeck author. Yeah, so it's a it's a big Hobeck celebration, actually. It really is. I mean, why we pick the seventh of December as our sort of let's throw everything out at that point, but <laughs> uh, very exciting. And uh, actually, sneakily, one of the major audio retailers has already started offering it, which is naughty because I set the date for seventh of December, and it should be the seventh. It's the of second December. time they've done this as well, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, they so... do. They they get, they jump the gun. Yeah. Um, anyway, naughty audible, slap wrists, uh, but it is available now, and uh, it's also available. Not just from Audible. If you wish to purchase it, it is at a discount rate at our own Authors Direct audiobook page, which you can access through our website, www.hobeck.net. So we are girding ourselves for a party online. Do I have to wear a dress? I think we're going to have to make ourselves a little Christmassy, aren't we? Oh, if you can get a me a, if you can get me a Santa hat or something. Well, we have a bag of Santa hats somewhere in this house, oh, right, but good. I, I don't know where they are. But I'll have a look. And where are we going to perch ourselves in here for this Zoom thing? I guess we are. I mean, we have to put some tinsel up. Yes, let's have a little planning session later. Yeah, <laughs> oh boy, we're you're off Christmas shopping. I am today. Yes, yeah, so in about an hour's time, um, I promised to take the three boys to Shrewsbury, where we used to live. Shrewsbury is a lovely town because it has still got lots of independent book uh, independent bookshops. I've got, right, it's got independent mind. shops and mundo, isn't it? Really? Yes, so it's perfect for for Christmas shopping. Um, I try and avoid doing too much online. I have to do some online, but if I can um, enter shops, it's like you. Yeah, <laughs> I, my, my stomach's grumbling and demanding breakfast. If I can enter shops and. Um, purchase and help the community then i will um my oldest child hasn't got a bank card at the moment for because he's sort of between a child and between an adult so he's taking cash but so he has to use um, a real shop so yeah that's our plan for the day it's probably going to be manic and it's going to be well the weather has improved i mean we have been lashed by rain for what feels like 24 hours uh when i went out last night briefly to get some uh, ingredients for dinner uh the we were starting to flood again. You know, the fields are saturated yeah, and, um, you know, the boring. roads around us uh, are very prone to flooding. And then there's snow beckoning this week, which means that we shall no doubt be Yay. Uh, confined to quarters. Well, actually, I've got, to, I've got to sort of zip up and down the M6. You've got two trips, haven't you, next week? Yeah, medical trips, uh, usual stuff. Um, we've got quite a busy week because we've, um, we've got a podcast, obviously, and we've got a couple of other um, online meetings and parties as we've mentioned so yeah it's a 
bit really busy week next week. It is. It's chocker. It's absolutely chocker. And of course, we've got the day to day work of running the business, reading submissions, feeding children and cats. Yeah, I'm, I'm knee deep in audiobook projects at the moment, and sort of <laughs> spending hours doing those, which I love. But you know, it takes a great deal of energy. Um, and the other thing that had something crossed my mind, and I, I can't remember what it exactly was that uh, I was going to bring up. Um, I don't know. I'm so sorry. Oh, yes, we ought to mention who <laughs> next week's guests are. Um, okay, so the, um, they're called uh, uh, Dan and Leanne, and they work in a bookshop in Norwich. Um, it's, it's called something like Book Tales and Dragons or Dragon Tales and Book Tales or something like that. I'm sorry. Ah, oh, brilliant. Well, we, we'll do our research <laughs> between now and then. Uh, Dan and Leanne. I think, yeah. You think, oh boy, right? You know, your face has gone blank. <laughs> anyway, we have two booksellers on the but show. The, the, the interesting thing, though, is they are a husband and wife team, or their partners. I'm not sure if they're married, but they're, they're, you know, it's, they've got that similarity with us. So they run yeah. the business together. I think she's more front of house, and he does some back, mm-hmm. back, back of house. Is that the expression? <laughs> um, he also does other work, um, online publishing work as well. So I think that a lot of our interest in them is going to be compare and contrast what it's like yeah exactly i mean we've you know we've got this relationship dynamic uh and you know we run a business together and it'll be interesting to share that um you know perspectives with someone else from you know slightly different side of the publishing game um you know and, and and sort of compare notes really um, I think also this week we're going to have to start thinking about what are we going to do for our fiftieth podcast. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, that's a difficult one. It is, yes. But we'll 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 come up with a plan. But more later. <laughs> yeah, a lot more later. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. Don't forget to go to our website www.hobeck.net to find out more about our authors, our books, discounted paperbacks, discounted audiobooks, all sorts of things goodies uh within that and of course news. and of course please don't forget to uh consider for charity buying our book the dark side of christmas our anthology of christmas tales uh, which goes to a charitable cause all proceeds so we'd really be delighted if you would consider that but don't forget also the hopcast book show please subscribe if you haven't already to wherever you get your podcasts from but from me, Adrian Hobart. And me, Rebecca Collins. Thank you so much for joining us. And we look forward to speaking to you next week. Have a wonderful, creative week. Bye-bye. You've been listening to The Hobcast from Hobeck Books with Adrian Hobart and Rebecca Collins. You can find the show notes at our website, www.hobeck.net. You can also use the exclusive Hobcast discount code for any of the products at our Hobeck online store. Just enter the code HOBCAST20 for a 20% discount. Don't forget to subscribe to the Hobcast and feel free to contact us with any feedback. Until next time, remember our motto, Trad Values, Indie Spirit. Indie Spirit.